This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Black hole sun, won't you come? biography of Soundgarden and Audio Slaves lead singer Chris Cornell is out today. It's by Seattle writer Corbin Reef. He joins me now to talk about the book. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So you started writing this biography following the suicide of Chris Cornell in 2017. And as a biographer, you obviously weren't able to interview Chris Cornell. But you also weren't able to interview any of his family members or members of his bands Soundgarden, Audio Slave, and Temple of the Dog. Why were so many people unwilling to talk? You know, I think there's a multitude of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, you know, they feel a lot of affection and a lot of have a lot of wrapped up in their own memories of Chris. And, you know, the way that Chris passed was so sudden and so um, traumatic for a lot of people that it's been it's been very hard for a lot of people to open up about that. You know, um, he was such a, an incredible figure and had such a, made such an impact on so many people's lives that, you know, to kind of even talk about that was, I'm sure, a painful process for even people who did speak to me. And there was dozens of people that did. Um, the other thing, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot in the air between a lot of those people, legally speaking, a lot of issues that are kind of unresolved about Chris's state and the status of that and everything that, you know, I think that didn't necessarily want to wade into, um, matters of him while that was ongoing, which, you know, I totally understand and, and, and did what I could to kind of try to make up the ground there by going to past interviews that they had done and digging deep in the archives of what Chris had said. You know, I spent a lot of time at the Seattle Public Library digging through every single issue of the rocket, dug up old concert clips to find song banter with Chris details, uh, whatever he could about songs. Basically, you know, I, I looked at the book as Chris wouldn't get the chance to tell his own story while he was alive. So I felt it was incumbent upon me to do as much digging as I possibly could to try to find as much material as I possibly could about what Chris had said about different events and music throughout his life to kind of try to paint a portrait from his own view of of what his life unfolded like and how those different experiences and moments shaped what he did. And, you know, it's not exactly a memoir autobiography. I wouldn't want to characterize it that way, but but it does seek to do as much of that work as, as it could. In the book, uh, you talk about how A&M Records tried to get Soundgarden to sign to their label pretty early on in Soundgarden's career, but the band didn't bite at first. And there's a, a big theme in this book that, you know, Soundgarden turned down big offers because they didn't want to be influenced by the market. They didn't want to be commercial. They just wanted to be themselves and have the audience come to them organically. And I know that, you know, you write in the book that even Chris Cornell said, you know, we don't change for the marketplace and it exists. We just continue to exist until the marketplace's changes for us. Right. And Soundgarden did eventually sign to AM Records, but what do you think were the key factors that allowed Soundgarden to, to rise and to have a following and generate their sound without the help of a label? So really, it was just kind of, fun, you know, going with their muse, going what felt organic and natural to them. You know, they were they were just young kids and that was what seemed cool to them. And that's what they wanted to do. And they had values and virtues that they weren't willing to compromise for the sake of of money. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of bands don't always have those 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 value structures, but they did. And, and I think that that's kind of what they were kind of getting at is that we're going to, we're going to do what we want to do. And we're going to follow our own compass. And hopefully the audience is out there and likes our music enough that they'll find us. And we're not going to try to, I mean, everyone makes compromises, especially once they were 
on AM, they made compromises and they did things that maybe they didn't want to do and as much press or interviews or, you know, tours or whatever, they got burned out. But um, they really did kind of follow a, a compass that they they had in their own minds. And, and uh, they were right. They were proven right. The audience eventually did find them. Maybe not as soon as they would have liked and uh, maybe not to the level of some of their peers, but they, they the audience was there and they they were discovered. A lot of your book, you know, the biography of Chris Cornell is is set on tour or it takes you to the recording studio for various different albums. What is your favorite story about something that Chris Cornell did on tour that surprised you or surprised the people that were there? He did a lot of stuff. You know, there was there was lots of um especially in the early days, lots of shenanigans, like, you know, chugging a gallon of milk and spitting it all over the crowd. Uh, I, I, I talked to Snake from uh, the band Voivod, who they toured with Soundgarden in 1990 uh, with Faith No More. Uh, but Snake told me, you know, he'd have to like watch Chris as he, you know, would monkey bar his way from the stage to the sound booth and then back to the stage and just thinking to himself, like, how am I going to even measure up to that? Like, it's just, you know, he had this intensity. Yeah. You know, and also, again, you know, in this book, the biography of Chris Cornell, you um, you also, you know, talk a lot about all the different recordings um, and albums throughout Chris's career and the songs that he wrote. And I'm just curious, you know, do you have a specific song or maybe a few songs that you have a favorite story behind one of his songs? Sure. I mean, there's there's the thing about Chris Cornell is I think if you read the book, you you kind of learn that, you know, he started off as a drummer first. He was Soundgarden's first drummer when they were like a power trio, Hiro Yamamoto on bass, uh, Kim Thiel on guitar, and then Chris on drums. But he started off as a drummer. That was his first instrument, even though his brother Peter tried to teach him a little bit of guitar. It just didn't stick at that point. So he had a massive evolution as a songwriter over the course of his career. He learned to kind of play guitar, watching Kim Thiel and figuring things out himself. And he kind of shaped himself into a, an amazing guitar player and someone who played with alternate tunings all the time. And I kind of think one of the most amazing stories about Chris is, you know, that that uh, tape that Jeff Ament made, uh, made for um, – the movie Singles, uh, he was kind of working some set design stuff on that movie, uh, Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam, that is. And he made a cassette, just had some fake placeholder names on the back of the cassette. Uh, one of them was Spoon Man. One of them was Missing. Another was called Nowhere But You. Uh, there was one called Flutter Girl. And then there was a song called Seasons. And as a, not as really a joke, but like as a, just kind of a tip of the cap, Chris took the tape, went home, and wrote songs, five songs based on just this this tape of titles that he got. He got, and ended up giving it to Cameron Crowe. And I mean, some immortal, <laughs> immortal songs on that tape, Spoon Man and Seasons, being two of the most uh, most most well known and beloved. Uh, just came across as a guy working in his bathroom, kind of strumming a guitar or a closet, and uh, coming up with some songs off the cuff. Um, it's pretty amazing that he was able to do that. You know, also, you had mentioned how there's some, like, key titles that are in Soundgarden's career that were total mistakes, like Super Unknown, was not supposed to be called (laughs) Super Unknown. Can you talk about how some of these accidents turned into some of the most iconic names for the band? Absolutely. You know, I think that one of the things about being a good writer is being adaptable. You know, uh, you may have an idea of something, and then you hear some other thing, and and then they just kind of go with it. I think 
I think that was one of Chris's strengths is that he was able to kind of adapt to a situation. Uh, one of the one of the early songs that you hadn't mentioned was Incessant Mace, uh, which is I think on uh, Ultra Mega OK. Uh, Chris had a different name for it, but Kim Thile had misheard it and uh, he's heard, oh, Incessant Mace. Yeah. And then Chris is over here like, yeah, Incessant Mace. You know, what else did you mishear that I had, I had said? And uh, it became that song instead of whatever he originally entitled it. Unknown is, is really fascinating because it came from there's a Seattle legendary uh, performer. His name's JP Patches. He was a clown who was uh, on kids television uh, in Seattle in the back in the day in the 70s and whatnot. And uh, Chris had a collection of his like greatest hits or whatever on VHS. And the title of the VHS was Super Clown, but it was spelled with a K. So like Super K-L-O-W-N. And uh, one morning he woke up bleary eyed, saw the tape or whatever and and read it as Super Unknown and thought to himself, hey, you know, that, that sounds pretty cool. I think I might write a song about, <laughs> about Super Unknown. And then it becomes the title for the song and the album. else that you talk about in your biography of Chris Cornell that I thought was interesting is, you know, he is such a powerful, unique, amazing voice. And you talk about how he kind of starts to learn how to use different registers in his voice. And he started tapping into all these, you know, new octaves that he didn't have access to before, but also this idea that he almost became an actor when he sang, where he saw his voice as a character. Can you talk a little bit more about how he view, how he approached singing from this perspective of a character? Chris Cornell gets pegged as like, you know, um, the screamer, the hard rock guy, Zeppelin influence and all that stuff. And for good reason. I mean, it makes sense uh, if you see him and listen to his music. But the Rosetta Stone to understanding uh, Chris Cornell is you have to understand that he was a Beatles fan first and foremost above everything else. Most of his songwriting, most of his, um, well, I guess everything really as a, as a musician was kind of influenced and based on the music of the Beatles. And, you know, if you listen to Beale's records, you'll notice that, you know, John has a song, Paul has a song, Ringo even has a song, George has a song. So when you listen to that record, there's all these different voices and that appealed to him. You know, he didn't think that you had to just have one sort of thing across a whole album. And so he tried to occupy that, especially especially during the super unknown era. He he tried to, to modulate his voice so he wasn't just, a, you know, screaming the entire time. He, he'd croon and Temple the Dog's a great example. Call Me a Dog is... I think if you're going to look at Chris Cornell as a vocalist, you can kind of do a lot worse than uh, Call Me a Dog as being exhibit A of what he can do to kind of go from the beginning of that song where you're just kind of crooning smokily. And then to hit the high register at the at the right at the apex before Michael Creedy's guitar solo is just, it's next level. He always was kind of seeking to do that uh, in his music. And, you know, one of the early I'm rambling here, but there's just so much to say about Chris Cornell. <laughs> one of the early uh, moments of discovery for him was he was singing the song Heretic, 
uh, one of Soundgarden's earlier cuts in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, he just one day, like, he was singing it and then just broke through. And it was this whole new dynamic range of notes that he never had discovered before. And it really kind of opened up a lot of possibilities that he used to immense effect as the years wore on. was deeply tied to the greats in Seattle's music scene. You know, his his first wife managed Alice in Chains. His side project, Temple of the Dogs, featured members of what became Pearl Jam. He played shows with Nirvana, toured with Guns N' Roses, and he ended up being the person who inducted Heart into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How did all of these artists and bands, I mean, just you're around like Seattle's legends at that point. How do you think they influenced Chris Cornell and his music? I actually don't know how much they, I don't know in the ways that they influenced him. I know that Kim Thiel was an, an, an immense influence on him and his, and his guitar playing. Um, you know, a lot of people got their first opportunities uh, from Chris. You know, Mike McCready, one of his first chances to ever be in a recording studio was to record that solo for Reach Down on Temple of the Dog, which is so incredible now. But I mean, that was, they had to really, you know, yell at him and, <laughs> and pull it out of him to make it happen. He opened a lot of doors for other people. I will say that. Um, so it's a more le- like he influenced Seattle scene versus Seattle artists influencing him. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, you know for me like I, I would I'm, I'm, Andrew Wood is obviously an incredible influence on him. I, I guess we should mm-hmm. probably talk about a little Andrew Wood a little bit here now. Um, Mother mentioning, Lundown, yeah. Mentioning Temple of the Dog a little bit. You know they were roommates or on Capitol Hill at a place off just off Melrose, and uh, you know they. Well, they weren't in a band together, you know, Malfunction, Andrew Wood's first band would practice at the at the place and Soundgarden would, you know, do some rehearsals there and they were constantly all, you know, working together and getting really tight. But, you know, Andrew Wood was a much more prolific songwriter than Chris. And, uh, you know, Chris always envied Andrew Wood's ability to, you know, crank out songs like this. And conversely, Andrew Wood always kind of uh, was jealous of Chris's kind of musical sophistication and knowledge of keys and chords and things like that. So they really pushed each other and had like these, I wouldn't call them battles, but like they would show each other stuff and, and talk about music in a way that, you know, really impacted both of them. You know, and I think about, you know, Andrew Wood and I think about, you know, again, some of these other artists, you know, Lane Staley of, of Alice in Chains. And then also there's Kurt Cobain, you know, all of which those three guys, you know, died at an early age, whether it be a suicide or overdose. And I know that, you know, Andy Wood's death was especially impactful to Chris Cornell. I mean, how do you think all of those deaths impacted Chris Cornell? Deeply. Um, I would say deeply. Beyond even those names you just mentioned, he was really close to Jeff Buckley um, before Jeff Buckley had died. He was really close to Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon before Shannon Hoon had died. Shannon Hoon had made him that iconic, you know, crooked fork necklace that he he would wear from time to time. And 
uh, you know, those, those tragedies kept piling up and, you know, there's a, there was a story that he told in his life about this, um, this moment after Andrew Wood had died and they had the, you know, uh, event at the Paramount theater for him. And they all gathered at Kelly Curtis's house and they're sitting around talking and, and Lane Staley bursts through the door, you know, just crying. Like he hears the boots coming in and, and Lane Staley's just a mess. And, uh, he's just sitting there wailing and, and Chris and nobody really got up to give him a hug. And, and that memory for whatever reason kind of always haunted Chris throughout his life. You know, he, he wrote about it decades later, just as, as something he really regretted. And I think that those those relationships and those those tragedies meant a lot and left a deep scar on his heart in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, and there's also, you know, in the book, obviously, we know what the result is of Chris Cornell's life. You know, he ultimately commits suicide. And, and there's a moment in the book where, you know, you're kind of, we're a little bit foreshadowing, even though we know what the result is throughout the book. But you mentioned that after the death of Kurt Cobain, you know, Chris Cornell said something to the effect of, you know, for people to not uh, interpret uh, Kurt Cobain's lyrics, don't read into them too much, you know, alluding to his death. And then he goes on to say, you know, what are you going to do when you read mine? And that's something that he said in 1994. Right. Um, what did you think when you read that, when he said, don't look into lyrics, what are they going to say when they read mine? And then you've been digging into Chris Cornell's music, you know, what's your reaction when you heard him say that? It's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting dilemma for, for a biographer. Cause you know, uh, Chris at the same time in one, in one side of his mouth is saying, you know, don't read too deeply into my lyrics and words to try to come up with, you know, my state of mind and things. And granted, you know, a lot of these songs like, uh, pretty news or like suicide were written decades before he, you know, had taken his life. And, um, but at the other side of his mouth, he would say, you know, if you want to get to know me, you know, listen to my music. So you're kind of caught in this dichotomy between, you know, not wanting to be too literal about, you know, when he when he wrote like suicide. Well, like suicide is a great example. Um, that's not really it's a, about, it's about a bird. Him. It's about a bird. Yeah, it's about a bird that flew into a window that he heard while he was, you know, in a basement of his house. And he went out there and he had to, you know, take a brick and do a mercy killing because it would broke its neck. And he wrote this this uh, this song about it. So it wasn't even necessarily about, you know, him feeling suicidal. It was just kind of like like suicide. There is that temptation to, to read into things and, and look for clues, and I'm sure that people will continue to do that till the end of time. You know, he was someone who was very open about his his struggles with addiction and, and being depressed sometimes. And, you know, I think he was someone who's very honest with his music. Uh, but to read into to the music itself, to look for those clues, you know, it's it's a fraught journey is what I would say. You know, you had mentioned, you know, obviously Chris Cornell struggled with addiction throughout his life, but he also had long moments of sobriety and was very dedicated to that sobriety. And I know you couldn't dig into this as much as probably you would like based on the circumstances of not being able to talk to family members or a lot of those cr close to Chris or even Chris himself. But what was your general understanding of Chris Cornell's struggles with addiction or depression or just a, his mental health? Yeah, you know, he he went through periods where he was, you know, really good and really solid and other periods where that were more rocky. You know, his teenage years were were definitely uh well, not teenage actually younger than that actually. He uh 
he was growing up in Seattle and smoking pot and taking pills and doing all sorts of stuff like that. And then um, he had a bad experience with uh, some pot that was laced with PCP and had a bad trip and became sort of agoraphobic for <laughs> a couple of years after that and swore the stuff off for the longest time. And and then, uh, you know, as Soundgarden went on, he started to drink a little bit more and then Soundgarden ended and he uh, fostered an addiction to, to um, Oxycontin. And eventually, you know, he got help and entered rehab and and got clean from that. And, you know, it was just something he, he, he really struggled with his entire life. He worked hard at it. He was definitely open about it. Um, he didn't necessarily hide it, especially much later in his life. He was a lot more, con- you know, contemplative. But there were definitely periods where I think a lot of people were very, very, very rightfully concerned about, you know, if he was going to make it out. You know, especially that era, right? You know, when he was uh, about to put about to put out Audio Slave, um, he filmed the video, the, that incredible video for Coaches. His manager had to check him out of rehab to then do that video and then brought him back to rehab. But it was something he was serious about. You know, he, he he stayed the month in rehab during that period. Then he re-upped for a second month of his own volition because he was really determined to to get sober and and be sober minded and and go on with his life. Yeah, you know. And then we we hit two, 2017. Um, he's on a reunion tour with um, Soundgarden again, and this is you know when when he commits suicide and there was substances found in his body that night and you know i'm sure anyone reading your book wants to find out what information do you have on his death you know and i i'm thinking about some of the things that you wrote in there you know you talk about the fact that chris cornell was making plans with his family to go on vacation after the tour yet you know there were things that were said during his detroit show you know he 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 died later that night after the detroit show he kind of ended his set with Led Zeppelin's In My Time of Dying. And then at the end of the set, he kind of starts ad-libbing, you know, his own lyrics, you know, saying, you know, all I need for you is to drag my body home, things like that. And then he ends the set saying goodbye to Detroit, yet saying we'll see you soon, you know, kind of these mixed messages where it's like he's making future plans, yet he's, this is the song he ends on, yet he says we'll see you soon. I mean, what do you think? Do you, I mean, what do you think about a suicide? Do you believe it was premeditated? And I know you don't have the answers, but I'm just curious after all your research, what you think about that moment and what happened that night? I don't want to speculate too heavily um, about, you know, whether he'd been thinking about it for a long time or it was a spur of the moment decision. I, I can go off the evidence that is kind of out there. You know, I remember him uh, at that concert, that final concert in Detroit, you know, telling the crowd that night, you know, I feel bad for the next town after this. You know, I think it was in, he was going to Columbus the next day or somewhere else in the Midwest. And they had another gig lined up. Soundgarden, the rest of the band was on buses uh, going out to that gig. And, uh, you know, he took the, the, a car back to his hotel instead and, um, you know, did, you know, the, the tragic occurred. So I, I don't know how much of it. It seemed more spur of the moment to me, but I, I wouldn't want to put too much of my own interpretation about that because you know that act is such is such a complicated thing and and uh you know i I haven't really talked about this much with anybody but you know at at the front of the book there's a dedication to a lot of people that i knew uh or were important to me that that took their own lives and it's it's one of those things where you know you struggle with that for the rest of your life of you know why 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 you know what could we have done differently what could have been said what could have uh what could have changed that end result you know and and the the dissatisfying conclusion is, you know, you, you just never know sometimes. And it's just, you have to pick up the pieces and, and hopefully, you know, find some, some lesson or some, some catharsis in that act and, uh, and learn to accept that, you know, it just, it just happened. (laughs) 
Yeah, there will always be more questions than answers in that situation. Kind of in conclusion, through all of your research, what do you find most fascinating about Chris Cornell? I guess the the standard answer for me would be the music. Uh, I'm a music writer first, so the music would always be the most fascinating part. I would I'd love to learn how different songs were written. I love to learn how the recording sessions unfolded. I love to learn how he evolved as a musician. But you know, I went into this kind of as a fan of his music, so that part didn't really you know resonate as deeply as just discovering you know how admired he was by so many people, how rounded of an individual he was, how. Uh, his values, he never really compromised his values. Uh, he was a funny guy. He was uh, really, really sweet to people who who meant a lot to him. He was sweet to fans. Um, you know, he wasn't someone who, you know, he was a rock star, but he, he never really put on the airs of a rock star. He was just a, a really rooted individual who really cared deeply about music, cared deeply about his family, and um, he made the most of the opportunities that were given to him. And what do you think his legacy is today? I think personally, his legacy is, uh, it's just me. I think that there's Jeff Ament has once said that he's the best songwriter to come out of Seattle since Jimi Hendrix. And I would say that that's probably what I would uh, go with his legacy as, you know, uh, there's, there's bands that are more well-known. Nirvana will always probably be more well-known. Uh, Pearl Jam will always be able to pack Wrigley field and Safeco field and all sorts of places. But that stretch between like 89 when, you know, uh, louder than love, uh, Temple the Dog, Bad Motorfinger, single soundtrack, Super Unknown comes out. I would put that stretch of songwriting against uh, almost any individual's stretch of songwriting uh, that you can come at me with. He was just an immense talent. He had a lot of God-given ability uh, with his voice, but he also had a lot of determination to become a great songwriter, and he really pushed himself to do that. Um, whatever it took to to learn new skills, new tunings, new ways of doing things, uh, new recording techniques. He was endlessly cu- curious about that sort of thing. And, and he, you know, he might've been born with a lot of gifts, but he really maximized them to the, uh, to the greatest ability. I've been speaking with Seattle writer Corbin Reef. His book, Total Fucking Godhead, the biography of Chris Cornell is out today. That was Sound and Vision. Before we go, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. So KEXP is a publicly funded station, and people know us mostly just from their Seattle radio dial, maybe our YouTube channel, but a lot of it comes from word of mouth. Please spread the word about KEXP and the Sound and Vision podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It lets other people know that this podcast is out there. You can also go the extra mile and give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. Thanks so much for listening.